I tell you what, that is why we're here, because God is amazing at grace, and he's redeemed us, and he's changed our life, and it is a delight to worship him. So if you'd be seated, let's just go before the Lord in prayer as we just take a minute before we open his word. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes and say, God, what a delight it is to come and to gather in Jesus' name. You are the God of amazing grace. We deserve none of it. And yet, despite of our sinful condition, you are a God of everlasting, loyal love. And we worship you this morning from the heart. It's such a delight to be able to gather with your people to begin our week worshiping you. And so, Lord, now as we turn to your book, the Bible, we're asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would take the truth of Scripture and you would ground us, guide us, and have us guard our hearts as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, really good to see each of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we are making our way through this amazing Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 14 this morning. Have you ever wondered why there is so much failure recorded in the Bible? I mean, if you've ever read the Bible, you look at these men and women, and some of them have made a total disaster of their life. I mean, like real wreckage. And it's recorded right there in the Bible, and it's been preserved for centuries. And, you know, that tells us something. It tells us something about this book we call the Bible. First thing it tells us is that this book was written by God and not men. You see, human authors, they'd clean that stuff up, or they would just omit it. You know, like, we don't really want to talk about all the disasters that happen in these men's and women's lives. And so they would omit it, or they'd whitewash it, but not God. God wants us to see it as it really is, warts and all. The other thing that it tells us when we see all this wreckage in the Bible is that God intends for us to learn from these people's mistakes. God is a God of grace, and he demonstrates that in the lives of people that have blown up their lives, but he is also gracious to us because we're to learn from these examples even the negative ones. It's like a warning light just starts flashing, red. Beware, this could happen to you. Don't make these same mistakes. Learn from these examples. And when I talk about um, failure, I mean, first of all, we're all very familiar with failure. But when I talk about failure recorded in the Bible, I only have to say one name and you instantly know what I'm talking about. Peter, Peter, as soon as I said his name, you're like, whoa, whoa, talk about a descent into disaster. That was Peter. And there's something that we are to learn from Peter's life and and how he ended up with such significant failure. And I would like to review these five steps toward a spiritual meltdown with you. And as we've been making our way through Mark 14, we actually find that all five steps are recorded in Scripture. And so let me just tell you what a spiritual meltdown and these steps of descent into disaster look like. And the very first step is this, focusing on self. In Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 27, right after the final Passover and the first communion, Jesus makes a very startling statement and quotes Zechariah when he says in verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's been prophesied, but I want you to know that this is going to happen. I'm going to be struck down and you sheep, you're going to scatter to the wind. Do you remember though how Peter responded to it? He said in verse 29, oh no, No, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. These other guys, they're not made of the same constitution that I am. They don't have the same resolve, the same grit and guts. They're going to bail, but not me. Jesus, you can count on me. 
You know, it's his pride and his arrogance, and it was just featuring in his words and his life. You know, this isn't the first time that's, that uh, we find Peter speaking with such, such arrogance. In fact, one glaring example of this that you'd think that, you know, Peter would have learned, but Peter is kind of like us. Sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes, right? Remember when Jesus, when they had actually seen the transfiguration and they identify and say that, that he says like, yes, you are indeed uh, the Messiah. In fact, they had, Jesus asked them, who do you think I am? And they said, you are the Messiah, the promised son of David. And remember that, right after that, then Jesus said, I want you to know they are going to take me. The Jews are going to hand me over and they're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me but I will rise again three days later. And you remember, Peter stepped in like, oh no, that's not how this story is going to go. Remember that? And he steps in and Jesus had to rebuke him and say, you don't even know what you're talking about. And it was pretty strong because it had to be to get Peter's attention. But you know, the first step on a descent to spiritual disaster is just to focus on yourself. I mean, think of it. Peter should have learned. When did Jesus ever say something that wasn't 100% accurate and completely true? Never. But Peter seemed to know best, and it's the first step, focusing on self that leads to this descent into disaster. He's boasting in his carnal pride. He knows better than Jesus. And I want you to know that if you're focusing on self, it's all about you and what you want and how you think things should be, uh, that's actually more dangerous than you think. Let me give you a, a Bible verse, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. It's worth memorizing. And it says simply this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride, arrogance, it goes before destruction. The first step a spiritual meltdown is just to focus on self. But the second is this, failing to pray. You know, whenever you boast too much, especially about yourself and your accomplishments and what you are going to do, you're going to pray too little. And that's just kind of how it works out. You see, prayer, actual prayer, is a declaration that you are totally dependent upon God. Prayer isn't just like, well, I'll just say a few nice words, God, thank you, and, and be done with it. Prayer is a declaration of dependence upon God. It's communing with him. It's speaking to him, and it's saying, my need for you is not partial, but total. But you know, if you really don't see your need, you think that you've got the resources, whether it be your own intellect, your finances, your experience, your education, uh, if you feel like, you know what? I got this, guess what? You don't pray because you don't see the need. And friends, failing to pray is another step toward a spiritual disaster. You remember right after these events, they make their way through the valley of Kid the Kidron Valley. About 30 minutes away, they go to Gethsemane, the garden called the oil press, rather fitting name and you remember what Jesus did? It's, it's about midnight or so, and Jesus tells his men, I want you to keep watch and to pray, okay? That's what I want you to do. In fact, he took three of them. He took Peter and a couple others, took them a little farther into the garden. He says, I want you to keep watch, and I want you to pray with me. And then Jesus goes a little bit farther away, and he just pours out his soul. Remember before the Lord, before the Father? If there's any other way, God yet not my will, but your will be done to accomplish this redemption that would be so very costly. But you remember he came back and about an hour later and he's checking on the guys to see how their prayer is going, how it's going for them, and what's happening? They're all, they're all passed out. They're sleeping. And uh, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, using the name that he was originally given before Jesus changed it to Peter Rock, Simon, why Peter's acting like the old way. And he's saying, could you not stay awake and keep watch with me for one hour? 
Just one hour? You know, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Stay awake and keep praying. And then Jesus did this and went back and he started praying again. Checked on him round two. Guess what? Same story. Asleep. Jesus wakes him up, does this again. He goes, he's praying. He comes back the third time and the boys are all passed out. And Jesus wakes him up and he said, you know what? Now is the time. They're coming and I'm walking right into the teeth of this. I'm not running. You boys should have been praying. But I want you to know that when you're on your way to a spiritual meltdown, you will fail to pray. You know, I find that uh, praying is actually difficult. It's so much easier to do things, right? And to be involved in actions and activities, but to pray, well, that's challenging. And I'm like, why is it that, you know, prayer and my prayer life just needs a lot of growth? I think it's because this, the last thing that Satan would ever want is for Christians to actually really pray. I think, I think the enemy of our souls is totally fine with us reading the Bible, studying it, actually sharing our faith, telling others about Jesus. That's all fine as long as you don't pray because that's where the real work goes. It's not about, oh, look at this. You know, if you, if you read your Bible, this is what happens. And you study your Bible, but you never pray. You know what it leads to? Spiritual pride. There's nothing more odious than a guy or gal that thinks they're pretty sophisticated and pretty smart and they know a lot of Bible and they can beat you and whip you in any argument that you might have, put you in your place, but they look so very, very different than Jesus. It all comes because of failure to pray. Prayer is a recognition that your need isn't partial, it's total. And uh, for Peter, why uh, he failed Failing to pray, it's a step toward spiritual disaster. Let me remind you of the third one, and that is functioning in the flesh. Remember, Jesus says, get up, here they are. And when he says, here they are, do you remember? It's Judas, the betrayer. You got these different high priests and their security detail, and they have soldiers. John 18, verse 10, tells us that it was a Roman cohort You remember how many were in a cohort? One-tenth of a legion, 600 trained Roman soldiers. This this is a massive contingency of soldiers making their way at about 1 a.m. They approach this garden. And remember, it's at this point that Judas has that sign. Remember what the sign was? You'll know in the midst of the darkness, the one you ought to apprehend, the one who's Jesus, because I'm going to kiss him on the cheek the most tenderest sign of devotion. That's the one. But you know, Peter's well on his way on a spiritual descent and he starts functioning in the flesh. And you gotta admire him. He's got some guts, you know? It's like all these Roman soldiers, he's gotta be thinking about all those bravado statements like, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I'll do that. You know what I'm saying? I'm willing to fight. And I'm sure it was stinging a little bit because Jesus had to wake him up three different times because he asked him to pray and he just couldn't get a, just couldn't make that happen. So you know what he does? It's time to act. And he starts functioning in the flesh. And you know, remember what he did? He pulls out his knife. It's like a dagger. And in front of all these soldiers, he pulls it out and he goes for the head of the first person there. It happens to be a guy by the name of Malchus. He was the slave of the high priest. He goes for his head He misses, and he gets an ear, right? Whoa, can you imagine? All the soldiers, man, they're ready for a fight, and it's starting. They're all there. And Jesus puts a stop to all of it. You know, this isn't the Salvation Army that's out there. These are Roman soldiers. They're not like tinkling little bells. This is like an army ready to fight to put down an an insurrection, and that's how they pen Jesus And you know what Jesus does? He heals that high priest slave's ear. And I'm sure it really stung and hurt to have your ear lopped off like that. But I'm sure it really dismantled Peter to see that Jesus had to once again fix one of his big mistakes. You know, what Peter and the guy should have done is follow Jesus' lead, right? 
He'd been in tough situations where they were trying to apprehend him, and he always had it worked out. But you know, when you're on a slide to a spiritual meltdown, you start functioning in the flesh. And that's exactly what you see in verse 50. Look what happened. They all fled. You see that? They took off running. I wonder how high a price we have paid as Christians for functioning in the flesh. Howard Hendricks, uh, a late um, and a great professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, writes of an experience of one of his really good friends, a man he had a ton of respect for, had been a pastor for over 40 years, taught the truth just, I mean, with integrity. I mean, it was vibrant. It was awesome. But something had changed in that pastor's life. Um, You know, he'd been in church a long time, and he had taken quite a few shots, paid a pretty big price, and he grew bitter. And on his final sermon, he just opened up his mouth, and he just let him have it and just kind of laid him out. And it was, it was terrible. And of course, you imagine that didn't go too well. But Howard Hendricks writes that, you know, this man, he had such deep regret, deep regret of what he said when he shot off with his mouth from the flesh. And Howard Hendricks said, you know, I prayed with him on a number of occasions And I've never seen hotter tears come down a man's face as he would say this, Howie, I'd do everything to get that message back. You might be surprised at what some married couples will say to each other, or families, or maybe you wouldn't. But I tell you what, when we function in the flesh, when we're not under control of the Spirit, when we are unwilling to pray and we are so focused on ourselves and my perceived needs and what I want and how it ought to be done, friends, that's where we're going to get into some real trouble. Let me give you the big four of the flesh. I'll give you an acronym so you will remember these because you need to be able to identify when they're starting to surface in your life so you can address them. G-PAL. Here are the big four of the flesh. Greed, pride, anger, lust. Greed, pride, anger, lust. When they become your driving motive, is this, when this becomes how you move forward and you start acting on emotional impulses and what you want and how you think, wow, this will make my life so much better and I don't really like what I've got right now because it'll be better if I do this or I'm mad or I'm arrogant, and I want you to know you are on a descent for disaster. Get ready for the fallout. Remember this. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. You can pick your sin, but you cannot pick the fallout that comes from it. You you just live through it. And in fact, sometimes your sin is going to affect you and many, many people that you had never imagined. Friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids. Of course, you're all blind to that at that time. And that's what it looks like when you're on a descent to spiritual disaster. Let me give you the fourth step. You go from functioning in the flesh to following at a distance. Look at verse 54. It's, it's really loaded. Following at a distance. Look at Peter. After Jesus is apprehended, and they haul him away to the beginning of this kangaroo court and that trial, that religious trial, verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And so here we have Peter. Peter's loyalty is at war with his fear. He's like, this is a dangerous place. But I, I'm really interested in what's going to happen to Jesus. I, I, I care about him. And I, made some pretty brass statements here, but then I ran away. And so I'm following Jesus at a distance. He didn't utterly abandon Jesus. He's just, he's way back there out there in the dark. He's got to stay far enough away as if not to be recognized as being with Jesus. You know, it's like a lot of folks that um, are just unwilling to actually admit, confess, or remark 
that they are a Christian, that they follow Jesus Christ. I mean, they're like, oh, I, don't, I don't really want to do that because in some circles, I could be labeled a religious fanatic. Oh, there's nothing worse than that. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm going to follow at a distance. I'm going to blend in. And so what happens is your temptations, if you're following at a distance, they are greatly multiplied because you've taken the path where I'm, I'm not really going to identify with him, but it's not like I've totally abandoned which leads us then to the fifth step, to its spiritual disaster, and that is fitting in with those who are far from God. Look at verse 54 again. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. And so here we have Peter. Now he's rubbing shoulders with the enemy, Here he is, and he is fitting in completely. Here are these officers that had just apprehended Jesus. They're kind of hanging out and waiting to see what kind of spectacle this Jewish leadership is going to do in this massive courtyard with Jesus. And guess who's trying to fit right in with them, acting just like them, warming himself at the exact same fire, at the same watering hole right there. And he's just kind of fitting in with those who are far from God. How far? Well, if you keep reading the text, you find out that after they uh, identify that Jesus is making claims that indeed he is the one true God, remember how they treated him? They said, blasphemy, the high priest tears his garments in this fit of rage. It's all just a big act. And then they just go after him. They start pounding him in the face with their, their fists, spitting on him in absolute ridicule, mocking him. Guess who, by the way, joins in that? Look at the end of verse 65. You know, see that? After they spit on him, blindfolded him, mocking him, telling him, prophesy us, to us. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And who's hanging with these guys? It's Peter. It's that final step toward a spiritual meltdown. And that is fitting in with those who are Far from God. You know, perhaps in our school or at our job, guess what? We've, we've actually even denied that we know Jesus. We've had an opportunity to actually just, it was wide open. We could just clearly identify with him or even just share the gospel. And guess what? We went radio silent. You know, silence is a form of denial. And we always place ourselves in grave danger when we are following Jesus at a distance and we're just trying to fit in with those who are far from God. We adopt their lingo. We adopt their mindset, their patterns. We're just trying to fit in. It's a dangerous place to be. I'd like to just ask you, do you identify with Jesus? Do you? Do you identify with Jesus? Does anybody in your family, extended family, know that you are actually a follower of Jesus? Anybody at school? Your friends? Do they know? How about at work? Does anybody on the force at your job know that you're a Christian? Anybody in your neighborhood? Do they they have any idea? At your funeral... Is there a risk that someone's going to go into cardiac arrest when it's said by the pastor that you were a Christian? Like, what? You got to be kidding me. Are they sitting out there thinking like, you're telling me that Bubba or Sally Emma Sue was a Christian? I know them. Are you kidding me? Ah, and this is what they'll say. You know what? That's the pastor and he's just trying to be nice. He's trying to comfort the family by saying that Bubba or Sally Amasu is a Christian. I mean, they're like, what? Didn't see that one coming. That's a shocker. Friends, you don't have to put like a little fish on the back of your car. And if you're not a real good driver, I'd advise you not to do that. You don't don't have to do things like that. But if you are truly a believer in Christ, 
People ought to be able to tell by your, your words, your heart, your attitudes, how you handle yourself, how you go about your job. They should be able to see from the patterns in your life that Jesus is important, that worship is important, that Christ and his word mean something to you. But you know, this is the descent toward spiritual disaster. And Peter is taking it step by step by step. So what does a spiritual meltdown look like? That brings us to verse 66 in chapter 14. Jesus is inside. He's on the trial of his life. But so is Peter, but in a different way. Mark in his gospel, uh, when he places the denials of Peter, it is right after all of the beat down on Jesus, where they take their fists and pummel him and spit on him and mock him and blindfold him. It's after this, at this point, Jesus is bruised, bleeding. He's got spit coming off his face. It's at this point. We get a firsthand look at what a spiritual meltdown looks like. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, what? I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch and a rooster crowed. One of the servant girls, a, a female slave, uh, these, uh, like the high priest's home, would be palatial. It's got a massive courtyard, big enough for the entire Sanhedrin, that's 71, counting him, their staff, all of these different soldiers, and one servant girl, you know, like she's like looking at this scene and like, wait a second, Peter, that, that guy right there, I've seen him with Jesus. Because remember, Jesus has been teaching on the Temple Mount the entire Passover week. You know that Peter is nearby. He's Jesus' key guy. And so she calls him out and says, you, you, you're with Jesus the Nazarene. And when she says the Nazarene, you need to know, like, that's a slam. Because, like, Nazareth is in Galilee, but it's just an, a Roman outpost. It's a know-nothing hick village that the Romans had taken over. And to be with Jesus the Nazarene? And so she throws that out there. But Peter, like, oh, oh no. I, I, what? I, I don't know what, understand what you're even talking about. And notice then he, like, you know what? I, gotta, I am a little too close to the heat. And so he goes to the porch, the forecourt. So you've got a large court, but you've got a little entrance court. It's also where the door is because Peter's thinking, you know what? This girl is onto me. I need to be able to get out of here and run and hightail it out of here in case it gets really dangerous. But Peter also needed an opportunity to gain his composure and someplace to maintain his anonymity. So verse 69, then the servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. Look at that. She's putting a lot of emphasis on this. But again, he denied it. You know, there seems to be like a group of them, and they seem to be like, no, no, this is one of them. And this, this servant girl is like, no, emphatically. But Peter again denies. I want you to know that denying Jesus has a way of diminishing your strength. And it's, it's happening. I mean, the meltdown, can't you just see it? He's unraveling. And so it seems it's like about an hour or so later, you know, I, we're not exactly sure on all the timing of this, but we got that second denial. But take a look at verse 70 after that second denial. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them. <laughs> For you are a Galilean too. So remember when I told you about Galilee? And you could always tell who the Galileans were. You know why? Because they had an accent. It was different than the Jews in the South. It's kind of like, like when we have someone that comes in from New York and they've got that strong Bronx accent, we know immediately you're not from these parts, right? You can tell by their accent. 
And the same is true, like if you've ever left the great state of Texas and maybe gone to New York, not saying you have to, and some folks never leave the state, no problem. But if you do decide to venture out and you go to New York and you show up and you start talking to folks and you ask, how y'all doing? They're like, whoa, can you say that again? You are from Texas. Whoa, you know what I'm saying? And that may not be a good thing in their mind. I don't know, but they do know that you are not from New York. Why? Because of how you talk. And they picked up immediately with Peter's accent. But notice, it's this third time when they said, you're with them, you're a Galilean too. You can't deny it. But look at verse 71. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. He began to curse and swear in his denial. This probably isn't like the vulgarity, the profanity that we oftentimes associate with cursing. It's possible it is. You know, some serious swear words to really emphasize. If that's the case, then what Peter's is doing, Peter's doing he's trying to distinguish himself between himself and righteous Jesus. You ever notice how just incompatible profanity is? With Christ. And so he may like, I I have really got to really emphasize how I'm not a part with Jesus. I'm not part of his gang. And so they start swearing. But likely what's taking place here um, is uh, Peter is asking that God would curse him if he's lying. Cursing and swearing. It, It would look like something like this. If I'm lying, may God strike me dead. That sort of cursing and swearing. I swear to you, I'm not one of his. May God strike me dead if I'm telling a lie. He's calling a curse upon himself. And notice even how he refers to Jesus. Not by name, but did you see that? He said, this man, okay? I do not know, verse 71, this man. That sometimes was used contemptuously. I don't even know this man, you know, like that. But as soon as Peter makes this denial and all of his cursing, and all these oaths that he's swearing upon himself, look at verse 72. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep, just as Jesus said. All the gospel accounts record this descent into spiritual disaster of Peter. In Luke's account, in Luke 22, verse 61, it says this, that right after the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter was positioned in such a way that he could see Jesus the abuse that he was taking is he's, he's standing there, you know? And it says that Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. Those eyes meeting his. And it wasn't a look of condemnation. It was a look of compassion, a look of grief, a look of sorrow. Peter, my dear, trusted friend, what have you done? You know how much I love you. You've been with me from the beginning, from the moment I called you to follow me. You've seen it all. You've heard it all. I talked about how these things would happen. I encouraged you to pray. It's the look of grace. You see, Peter is learning that there is a love that will never let him go. It's the love that Jesus has. It's a love that does not end even in bitter, utter denial. And so all of us, we can't be like looking down at Peter, like what a loser, because we'd write Peter off, right? No way, gone, total loser, uh, denied me three times, but not Jesus. And we all are all too familiar with what? Spiritual failure. Every one of us knows something about these descents into spiritual disaster. In fact, you may very well be on one right now, and that's why you're here, because God wants your full attention. He wants to address this now. So what does it look like? How does God restore and use broken people? I mean, we're all familiar with this. For Peter, he has to think, 
it's over. My life is over. My life with Jesus is absolutely over. He'll never use me, never talk with me. My life is a wreck, and it's just disaster and death. That's what he's got to be thinking. But you know, Jesus is not finished with Peter yet. And maybe you, you know all about disaster. You wrecked a marriage, and you really were the primary cause of it. Perhaps you made a significant error. You denied Jesus. Maybe you had a significant financial blunder. You've done things that you're like, this is the absolute worst. And if anyone would know, I, and Jesus knows, and you're thinking, you know what? I could never be of any use whatsoever. You need to know that this isn't the end of your story. Do you remember what Jesus said? On that night in which he was betrayed, in Luke chapter 22, verse uh, 32, it's recorded. Jesus said, listen, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen the brethren. They're like, no, no, we're not going to deny you. And Jesus said, yeah, it's going to happen. And after that happens, though, when you have returned to me, I'm going to put you to work to strengthen my brethren. And so I want you to know that's exactly what the early church would need people that knew a lot about what it looks like to fail and to even perhaps deny Jesus because when the waves of Roman persecution came and the Jewish hostility continued to amp up against the followers of Jesus, you needed some folks that knew firsthand what it looks like to face that kind of temptation and to learn to overcome it or even what to do in the face of the kind of disaster when you deny Jesus. So how does God restore and use broken people? Well, first thing you need to know is you need to be broken over your sin. Peter's true character is not seen in his denial so much as it's seen in his brokenness and repentance. You see that? And it says really right after these things happened and he began to weep. He didn't rationalize it away like, well, you know, someday I'll go on a long drive or get in a retreat and then I'm going to deal with these issues. No, he dealt with them now. He was broken over his sin. And I want you to know that tears of repentance, that doesn't atone for your sin. Only Jesus can do that. But it is a great indicator that your heart is coming back to God. But you've got to be broken over your sin. If you're like, this is a tough message for me to hear, but I'm going to keep persisting on in my sin and just kind of following at a distance or I'm going to be just finding myself kind of fitting in with those who are far from God. That's called a hardness of heart. And I want you to know that if you're really one of his, he has a way of breaking you down and it won't be pretty. You would really want to respond now, but you got to respond with brokenness. He's got a way of getting your attention. But then the second is that you need to believe that God still loves you and forgives you. Have a heart that turns back to him. It's, it's to recognize the security of saving grace. The power of this is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even our denials of him. It's an amazing testimony of God's grace. It's the wonder of security in Christ, and that's what we've got in Peter's life. It's a belief that God still loves you and forgives you which then leads you to the final aspect. And that is to begin to hope. Begin to hope again. The one thing that can carry you forward is hope. And that's the one thing that Peter felt was gone forever. In fact, he lived in that condition for three days. Friday, Saturday. But on that first Sunday, that first Easter morning, when Jesus was resurrected, remember the women early in the morning, when it was still dark, went to the tomb? All of the disciples, the men, they're all too chicken. They have no guts. They are afraid for their lives. But these women demonstrated grit and gravitas, dedication and devotion. They made their way to the tomb. And remember, they were greeted by these angels at this empty tomb of Jesus and they tell him that tell them that Jesus is alive that he's been raised from the dead and the angel makes this statement to these women and he says this these great words of grace go tell his disciples and peter not just tell the disciples but and peter those two words and peter they took that broken-hearted fisherman and infused his life with hope 
when he heard that. In fact, after the resurrection, when Jesus took Peter's heart and filled him with his spirit and made him a man of prayer, you know what? Why, we don't have any indication that Peter ever denied Jesus again. It wasn't that his life was perfect. In fact, we had a pretty troubling scene recorded in the book of Galatians where he kind of got off track, but uh, he never denied Jesus again. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus had made several appearances. He met them in Galilee, and Peter and the guys had started back just doing their previous occupation, which was fishing. Remember, Jesus met them at the shore And it was at that time, with all of them gathered after Jesus fed them breakfast, Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? In fact, three different times, because there were three different denials, do you love me? Peter affirmed his love, and Jesus then commissioned him to his service. I want you to feed my sheep. In fact, you want to see just how radically God can change an individual from disaster to dynamic faith? under the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer. You know, about 50 days later, at the Feast of Pentecost, Jesus pre- uh, Peter preaches perhaps one of the most courageous sermons in all of the Bible, in front of and in the face of the very same Jews that had actually apprehended Jesus and hauled him off and handed him over to the Romans to have him killed. Peter preaches a message and points that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But now he's governed by not the flesh, but by the Spirit, and he's a changed man. Do you remember Jesus' final words? Jesus' final words to Peter were just two, so he'd remember it. Follow me. I don't want you worried about other folks. I want you to follow me. And he does. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. It's not our wreckage It's not our disasters. It's not our failures. It's Christ. He is what's defining in our life. Failure is not unforgivable. In fact, it may very well be the crucible in which God forges strong character in Christ because God uses broken people. Why? Because his love never lets us go. So remember this. Your failure isn't your final story because Jesus is. And friends, that's the hope of the gospel. That's reality of relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the power of your word, how you show us with utter clarity what we need to be fully aware of, that each of us could take steps into spiritual disaster. In fact, we might, might even find ourselves well on our way, if not even there yet. So, Father, for someone who is here today who has never trusted in you, would they do that now and say, God, I, I need you. I am in such darkness. I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness of sins. I need life in your son. I repent. I turn from my sin, and I trust in you. Perhaps there's someone here today who is, recognizes these steps because they're in the midst of them. Would they just call out to you now as I pray and say, God, Rescue me. Forgive me. I need hope. I need to start again with you. And so, God, thank you that you've never let me go because of your love. Would you give me the grace, the strength, and the hope to move forward? And, Lord, for all of us, it's so easy to take these steps toward a spiritual meltdown. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need your Holy Spirit. Thank you for loving us and securely doing so. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, uh, we have an opportunity of hearing the stories of those who are being baptized. So if you are being baptized, you want to join me up here on stage. I want... I want you to know that uh, baptism... What you're about to hear and witness, this baptism doesn't save an individual. They don't... These are people that have already placed their faith in Christ, and they're doing this because they want you to know. They want the world to know that Jesus has indeed been the great rescuer of their lives. And so we'll get started here. Uh, So, Jennifer, you want to get us started here? And you can stand right here. Hold the mic close. Okay, you're going to teach us fine. Hi, um, my name is Jennifer Gates, and um, 
wanted to share my story with you. And, you know, they say a good preacher does a sermon that feels like he's talking just to you. And I sat there today and I was like, it's kind of exactly what I wrote. So I'm just going to read it. Um, I grew up in church. My mom was in the choir. And my family taught me about God, Jesus, heaven. And I knew these things. Or I had knowledge of them, but it was knowledge. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't belief. And when I was 17, something happened in my life, a traumatic event that I won't go into, and affected my family. It left me angry, bitter, resentful, and I didn't have trust in anybody. I was envious of others who I felt had a better or easier life than I did. Um, at first, I tried to feel better by acting out, going out, partying, drinking, being just a defiant teenager, but that didn't work. So I decided that I was going to make my life better. I, I went to college. I became a nurse. I got married. I had four beautiful, perfect babies and, um, I bought cars. I bought boats. We went on vacation. We spent money and everything was really good. And, and if you looked at our life, you would say they have a good life. There's nothing, nothing missing, but there was something missing. And, uh, you know, Jesus was there and, you know, thank you God for, for my kids and thank you for all this. You know, he was in the background. We came to church sometimes and I had a Bible and it had a fancy cover and I didn't open it and I would pray and I would pray just like Grant said. And I would say, you know, thank you, you know, Please help me be happy. And that's what I always prayed for was for me to be happy. And, and I would say thanks for these great things and, and loved ones would pass away and I believed they went to heaven and I figured I'm a good person. I'll go too, you know. I think there's even this Bible verse I saw on Facebook that says, you know, God has a plan for all of us and I've been pretty good. I mean, I've done some things, but I'll go, you know, um, I should be okay, you know. I was wrong <laughs> because deep down there was this little part that still was hurting and that didn't trust and that I did all these things on my own and I didn't need help. And uh, one day things were happening in my life and I couldn't fix them and I couldn't control them and there was nothing I could do about them. And that night I laid <laughs> on my couch in the dark and finally I really prayed and I said, I don't care if you... If I'm happy, I said, I just, I need you, Jesus, to come into my life. I need you in my heart, and I need help. I poured my heart out, and I begged for help. I confessed to all the anger and the sadness and the resentment and the trying to do it on my own. And I asked him to change my heart and to use me in the way that he needs me to be. And <laughs> It worked, and I can't tell you exactly why, but it was from the deepest place in me that I finally was able to trust and ask for help. And the first time ever, I surrendered my whole heart and life to his mercy, and now I know I'm saved. I know him, I trust him, and, you know, the verse I talked about earlier, where it was like, oh, God has a plan, and... And it's still, you know, you see it on t-shirts, you see it on Facebook posts, and the post is Jeremiah, it's, it's Jeremiah 29, 11. And this is, this is the part I always knew. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that was it. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. God has a plan. I'm all right. But that's not the whole statement. <laughs> and when I was praying for what to say um, on this verse, I read the rest of it. And it says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And that is what I was finally able to do. And I'm so happy to be here and to profess um, profess my faith and know that Jesus has saved me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Alexis Thomas. God 
has always been in my heart, I mean, my life. When we first moved to Waco and visited this church, I was learning more about asking Jesus into my heart and living my life for him. I believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I believe Jesus is God's son. I ask Jesus into my heart. Um, my name is Drew Olmstead, and I just wanted to share my story with y'all. Um, back when I was five years old, I thought I knew what it meant to be saved. Growing up, I was always the pastor's kid who knew the right answers and would say the right things. Up until I was 13 years old, I thought I was saved. Then one night, my youth pastor gave an in-depth devotion on salvation. I wasn't really thinking too much about the lesson because I had heard the message on salvation a million times. About halfway through the devotion, I started asking myself if I was saved or if I truly understood what it meant to be saved. One night, I was riding back home from baseball practice. Me and my dad just started talking about salvation and what it meant to truly be saved. And by talking with him, I understood that there was a hole in my heart that I kept trying to fill, either with sports or with video games, or sometimes just simply ignoring it. But no matter what I did, that hole was still there. And after having this conversation, I realized I was not saved, and that Tuesday night, I became a follower of Jesus and got saved. Since I made the decision, that hole in my life has been filled with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Today, I want to publicly profess my faith in front of the world and tell everyone that I have given my life to Christ. In doing this, I also want people to know the gospel. John 3.16 is the verse that states the gospel, and it is also my favorite verse. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. And that is my testimony. Jennifer, this is an exciting day, isn't it? Everybody, is this just the most wonderful expression of love that she can love her Lord Jesus back in this way? And uh, go forward in your faith in the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be baptized, okay? So, Jennifer Gates, it is my honor and my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, all right? Lexi, I want you to know I'm proud of you Um, with your family and your friends here. Okay, because of your faith in Jesus Christ and because you're publicly professing it to everyone, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Drew, who do you place your faith and trust in? Jesus Christ. Amen. Therefore, on your public profession of faith, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Got it?
Buried in life since death. Raised in the newness of life. person, a young man in our church that I think you probably are all familiar with Ben. I'm sure you've seen him, but you most likely do not know his story. And so we've actually recorded his story in video. And let me have you watch Ben's story. As I helped Benjamin walk across the stage at his high school graduation last year, I thought, this is it. This is his last major milestone. I pictured his peers going to college, getting married, and starting families of their own. I felt pride in his accomplishments in that moment, but heartbreak for what cerebral palsy had taken from him. But standing here today, my God and my son have proven that with faith, prayer, and perseverance, Mountains can be moved. I know there will be more to come. Jeremiah 1.5 Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Every life is created for God's purpose. Every life is a precious gift from God. Even those who most might look upon with pity, disgrace, or even disgust. After many years of doubt, grief, and guilt, I was blessed to realize my purpose. You see, after Ben's diagnosis, I was consumed by guilt. I questioned everything. What had I done to cause his CP? Why was he cursed with this affliction? Why not me instead? After years of agonizing torment, my relief finally came when Grant shared with me the scripture that changed my life. John 9, 1-3 As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I witness these works every single day in Ben. For those of you who may not know him, he has always had a spiritual connection, a ray of light, and he is constantly asking everyone to pray with him. He continues to bring joy to so many people every day. So my purpose in life is to help Ben facilitate his. But today isn't about my story. It's about Benjamin's. About 10 years ago, a very young, brave fourth grader befriended a small, shy boy that was much different than himself. Although Ben only attended Dylan Oslin's class for about an hour, hour a day, they become great friends. Dylan was Ben's first real school friend, so when he and his mom came to tell me they wouldn't be back after spring break, I cried. God had bigger plans, though. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Dylan and Ben continue to be friends outside of the school setting, no doubt through the teaching and guidance here at Fellowship, along with his amazing, devoted parents, Vanessa and Sandor. Dylan's kind and loving spirit invited us to visit his church, Fellowship Bible Church. Ben and I had attended numerous churches over the years. However, when we entered Fellowship, we felt an instant connection. Without hesitation, everyone was kind, caring, and welcomed us with open arms. We could feel the Holy Spirit and knew it was the place we needed to be. Over the next few years, Ben flourished in the children's ministry, growing deep in learning scripture through Bible study and worship and what it truly means to be a child of God, quietly soaking in all he heard, including the incredible praise music, which holds a very special place in Ben's heart. Where words fail, music speaks. Ben has had so many people from fellowship pour into his life by mentoring him, walking beside him, praying for him, encouraging and supporting him, just loving him. 
Through many great highs and very grim lows, we've seen God's fingerprints all over our lives. They say it takes a village, but in this world, I say no, it takes a church family. Here at Fellowship, growing deep in faith and investing in lives of others is constantly in focus. Thank you for the love and encouragement you have graciously given to Benjamin that has brought us to this day. And thank you to our family and friends that are here who love him and who have helped him grow and want to celebrate this journey. A few months ago, Ben witnessed John's testimony and baptism. As I rolled him to the car, he said, I want to be baptized. My heart was elated. I am faithfully had always questioned if it were possible for him to make this incredible life decision. Shame on me. Through scripture readings with Grant, Bible study, and prayer, I was confident in knowing that God holds Benjamin in his hands and his name is written in the book of life. However, hearing Benjamin himself proclaim that Jesus is his Lord and Savior reaffirms my faith and makes my heart swell with pride. Like many others, John 3.16 holds a significant place in Ben's life and in his heart. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Benjamin has grown in his faith and walked with God here at Fellowship. We are blessed to share his testimony. So today, Benjamin would like to be baptized in front of his family and friends to proclaim that he has chosen to follow Jesus. I say these things to the glory of Jesus Christ. Ben, are you ready to answer your questions? You can use your device and your words, okay? Where is your favorite place to worship God? God. Church. Yes. Where do we read stories to learn more about Jesus? Lila. Yes. Can you find it on your device? Mm-hmm. Who died on the cross to save us from our sins? Jesus. That's right. Where do you have Jesus? Uh, That's right, in your heart. What are you going to do to show others that you're going to follow Jesus? Can you find it on your device? I want to be baptized. That's right. And what can you share to help others follow Jesus? I. Mm -hmm. Can you find it? I want to be baptized. (laughs) What are you going to share? Get it. Share my story. You did awesome. Oh, you're good. Okay. So, all right. Yeah, love you, Ben. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Okay, you're okay. Okay, we're going to put you in your water. Okay, you're okay. Okay. All right. Ben, because you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so proud of you, Ben. We love you.
Oh. So happy for you. You did such a good job. You did such a good job. I'm so grateful that you've all had an opportunity to witness these baptisms and hear these stories. And that's probably why you're here today if you really don't know Jesus, because today's your opportunity. So why don't you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these tremendous stories of how you're at work in these lives, drawing them to yourself, trusting in your son. For someone who is here today who's never really done that, but after hearing the testimonies of authentic grace, would they just pray with me now and say, God, I I turn from myself and my sin. No more games. I'm putting my trust and faith in you. I repent and I receive your son. I receive forgiveness and I want to walk in the newness of your life and your strength and your spirit for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to allow these folks that were baptized that are, if y'all want to go ahead and go back and, man, what a, what a moment for the kingdom of God, for Fellowship Bible, for these families. And as Grant prayed this morning, he's offered the plan of salvation. And maybe you, you prayed and you gave your life to Christ. You, you, you repented and said, God, forgive me. We would love to celebrate with you this morning. And uh, on, on the back, we have a bunch of our students back there, but there's also uh, some adults on our prayer team. If you made a decision for Jesus this morning, we would love to be able to encourage you, pray with you, give you some resources. So would you seek one of those prayer team members out and just let us know? Uh, it would be a wonderful time to, to, just to celebrate with you. Uh, also, if you're in need of prayer for any other matter, our prayer team is there and we'd love to minister to you. And folks, let's just do this. Let's be reminded. We heard John 3.16 a couple different times throughout those testimonies, did we not? And that is our mission, is to go out and to share the hope of the gospel, how it saves, how it changes lives, how it allows us to live in the, uh, the, the gloriousness of Christ. So take that opportunity this week. Share your faith. Be identified with Christ. Point others to him. Have a blessed week. We'll see you soon.